Hello, it's your host, Sydney Gardner-Brown, and you're listening to The Sit-Down, a series of unfiltered, organic, recorded conversations featuring the voices of college students, usually my friends. (laughs) Our conversations are focused on capturing a wide array of perspectives regarding race, pop culture, politics, gender, sexuality, well-being, and so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. On today's episode of The Sit Down, we're talking radicalism. You know, radicalism, the insane concept of believing that everyone deserves basic human rights. Yep, that's the one. Right now, we're living in a world where it appears that the common man, woman, and person is finally realizing that, well, this country is one built on lies, racism, and general oppression. Congratulations to all of you finally realizing what many generations of the Black, Brown, POC, women, LGBTQ+, disabled, and disenfranchised have known forever. Today, everybody is an organizer in their own right, and our feeds and our TVs and our streets are overflowing with activism, progressive thinking, and general disillusionment with the state of life, liberty, and the pursuit of them. Oh, shoot. What was the last one? Oh, right. Uh, happiness? Is that how you say it? Yeah, don't know her. Anyway, what does it mean to really support this impending movement? Is it voting? Is it picking up a blowhorn and leading a march? Or is it something else? Today on The Sit Down, I'm going to interview Kyle, an old friend of mine, who is doing the personal, intellectual, conceptual, and social footwork that this movement needs, and he's willing to share his thoughts with you and I. Take this as an opportunity to understand why it will take more than peaceful protesting, lobbying Congress, and yelling at the police to push the movement toward true social justice forward. Kyle is going to take us through what he thinks it means to be a real deal radical and how to grow as an individual who virulently opposes oppression with a certain revolutionary optimism. And remember, we're not experts. We don't have it all figured out, but we're trying. I brought you here today because with everything going on in the world from abolishment to rioting and organizing and activism, I think the people of our circles and of circles that we can't really see or hear about, but we know they're there, are itching for ways to feel more more fulfilled in the movement, I think. Um, but many don't really know where to start. And even though it's possible to get active in a lot of different ways, you are one person I know who has gotten really deep into the bull of this country and understanding the bull of it all (laughs) and I don't know I just would like for you for a moment to just sort of talk about the people uh, talk to people about how you got to where you are as an activist and I don't know the way I imagined it was like something of like a like a guide like a guide for someone trying to figure all this shit out you know yeah yeah I can try my best um not sure I have the perfect answer but uh just kind of like to preface it I don't really consider myself an activist. I feel like that title is, um, you know, it's it's used really loosely and like misconstrued a lot. And mm-hmm. I think when I think of an activist in like the media or, um, you know, people get like interviews on, on national news and things like that, they bring the activist on as uh, kind of like a superficial representation of 
you know, the movement they're supposed to be a part of. Right, okay. Um, but we're, you know, in reality, we're all activists to some degree if we, like, recognize a problem and act on uh, trying to solve it, so. Okay. Yeah, um, but to give, I guess, you know, my path to this point of uh, radicalization. Right, because or... I, I knew you back when you were, like, President Kyle, like where you were like, I'm going to be president someday. And everybody was, I think that you were that kind of like almost like Democrat type of a person. And then over the years through college, I, I witnessed you go through Howard and every year just become more and more disenfranchised and disillusioned by <laughs> the system <laughs> that we are all upholding here. No, yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's been an interesting journey too, very um, unexpected. You know, very like enlightening, but at the same time sobering and kind of unpleasant. But mm-hmm. um, I'll get more into that a bit later. Okay. So basically, you know, in high school, right? I was um, involved in just like trying to understand politics in general, trying to understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, involved in student gov and like most of high school um trying to understand just like the processes that actually happen on like the governmental level um but kind of in play you know in the school setting mm-hmm. um but so basically growing up in detroit right i think we um we have a very inter- interesting perspective on uh how america works and a lot of the contradictions within you know, mm-hmm. how we're told that this country works, you know, how the world works, things like that. Um, so, you know, m- when most people think of Detroit, they probably think of uh, what most of the headlines say, you know, which up until maybe recently have been mostly about violence, crime, um, a lot of uh, poverty, uh, difficulties essentially, you know, achieving the American dream uh, that we're all told is possible. And I think, you know, it took me a while to kind of recognize why that is um, and to make more sense of it. So I was able to, like, you know, be cognizant of the problems at a kind of young age, or at least, Mm -hmm. like, what I thought some of the problems were. And, um, you know, from that standpoint, I tried to always understand the opposite, right? Like, how to solve those problems and what we can do to make these conditions better. Mm -hmm. Um, So going through high school, like, for example, I wrote my college application on my plan to solve world hunger oh, uh, I, I didn't know very, that very naive back then yeah yeah so I was literally probably in student go some of those classes like actually worked on that so not oh, I did not know that that was class. what you were writing writing your, <laughs> writing your letter about they were probably like wow what a soul <laughs> right yeah so I think what prompted me um is I was reading about billionaires right so at that point right. I'm pretty sure Bill Gates was still the richest, at least for a few years after that, until Amazon starts really pump out the billions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understood, you know, I can't remember the exact stats right now, but basically Bill Gates himself um, would have been able to solve world hunger for multiple years. Right. You know, and this is ensuring that uh, seven and a half, you know, almost eight billion people have enough to um, you know, had the nourishment they need to live just like basic, healthy lives. Right. Um, but, you know, I also understood the fact that, okay, well, this one man can do it. And we have these huge governments and these huge corporations with a lot more money than just this one man to 
and you know we're supposed to be in a society where um, we've achieved so much right. but still some people have so little and that didn't make sense to me right um but I, I wrote their essay essentially saying you know if we get the united nations together and if we just get some uh billionaires to give their money because you know the real problem is about like logistics right it's right. not about like whether they want to do it or not and right. i figured that like if we just coordinate it well enough coordinate the coordinate the logistics for them then they'll just give us the money exactly exactly <laughs> right okay um that was a very utopian idea and i kind of learned as i got into uh, like more of the political theory how like that that's the same kind of vision that like socialists and like the 16 maybe like you know 17 1800s had mm -hmm. um where they were kind of uh very optimistic but right. kind of naive and kind of didn't have um a real plan on how to actually achieve these changes right so when i got through howard um and honestly a lot of my information that i learned wasn't in my classes there mm -hmm. um but through conversations with friends there through different organizations mm -hmm. or that's how it goes though. To, exactly yeah like i would go to some extracurricular event and um you know they'd have a speaker who would mention other people who i should you know read books of and things like that so mm -hmm. It was kind of a long process of me just trying to like pick things up as I came along. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got to understood more and more, I could, you know, have conversations with some of the people who, um, you know, at Howard, who may have had specializations in those fields, uh -huh. but weren't actually teaching the subject, you know? Yeah. And so it was like, because I, I mean, I, I'm totally... I'm 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 in the same wave as you that a lot of times, like for me, it actually was my experience in my classrooms um, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think I also went into college with a very utopian idea of who I was and what I identified with. I think that I started to feel a little bit of something as a senior in high school where I was realizing like a lot of the things that people were saying, the people that I look up to were saying were unrealistic or um, or like they were feeding us dreams because when when I was a senior like that was when Trump I mean Trump got elected and it was just like all of that type that was like the, the sort of the vibe so I was starting to sort of get into that mode but it really wasn't honestly until I'd been in college for a couple of years and I had been meeting with people and and you know, going to student org events and honestly sitting in classrooms with radical professors who were like, so you think you can save the world, but do you even know, do you know what that even means? Like, I remember I was sitting in a sociology class my my freshman year and I had never taken a sociology course before ever. And um, the entire class was called, it was called social inequity. That was what the class was called. And the teacher just ran through just three um, macro topics of social inequity. Um, and by the time he was done, I was actually, I think I was actually depressed, like just realizing the, the girth of, of just what is wrong with not only just us, but just the world in general and all the intersections and it's like a giant pie chart, but each of the slivers of the pie chart are like the size of a, a, a fourth of the width of a single hair on your head. That's how. Yeah, it's so complex, right? <laughs> it's like, so complex. The system is so complex. So complex. So, yeah, I mean, then yeah, you're kind of like, like, what do you do? Do you just find something you're passionate about? You find one thing that you are super, super passionate about. That's what everybody does. 
you find something you're super dummy passionate about and you spend your whole yeah. life working toward it knowing well that you may never see the fruit of your labor and that's yeah. another that's another like hill you have to jump over yeah no definitely um yeah wow yeah yeah so i, I wanted to um kind of bring in one point because i know we shared a very similar experience um mm -hmm. but for me so this is uh two years after trump got elected um mm -hmm. so i was working in congress right had an internship with one of the representatives i won't you know name which one because i'll be a little bit critical mm -hmm. uh <laughs> but essentially <laughs> so <laughs> you are her constituent i'm not worried about being critical of anybody <laughs> Right, they owe it to us to listen to our complaints, you know, our right. criticisms. I'm not, I'm not um, ashamed. I worked for Brenda Lawrence, so <laughs> I'm gonna say exactly who it was. All right, yeah. So this is the summer of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, I was a CBCF uh, intern for con for congressional member Brenda Lawrence's office of uh, Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so two years after Trump got elected, right? So at this point, I recognized, okay. Uh, the electoral college exists and it, yep. it makes no sense yep. right you know like hillary got nearly three million more votes than trump yep. um but then trump still won yeah and <laughs> i mean the, the the fact that like that can happen again but right. nobody's talking about it right you know those captions on on like social right. media stuff that go around but no one's talking about I it. I know, Kyle. I've been thinking about that a lot. And I am a huge, if you know me personally, I'm a huge advocate for voting just because yeah. of the historical implications of what it means to get up and like voice your opinion and, and, and be in, and utilize that as a mechanism for voicing your, your using, you know, voting to represent your voice. Like that's my thing. But then you make that very valid point that you just made. I think about that every single day. Like, am I voting for nothing? Because it really, it could happen all over again. And no, no one on the news, no one, no one is talking about the reality that the electoral college could do exactly what it did the last time. So it's yeah. like, what do you do? What do we do? Do we just, yeah, what do we do? <laughs> it's like, that, that's why I mentioned, um, and not so, by a little bit, by 3 million people. Yeah. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's almost, well, you know, a little under one percent, but for voting, that's a huge portion. You know, yeah. the voter turnout is is you know rarely over like fifty or sixty percent, and that's for national elections. For local elections, it's you know a third of that. Right. Um, but so the reason I mentioned the Trump election and the internship in Congress is because after Trump got elected, I was like, okay, well, we have these three branches of government, right? The executive branch, it, it's rigged, so you know, only certain people are put into that position of power. Right. I was like, okay, well, the legislative branch, right? So over my, you know, eight weeks or so um, working in their office, I learned the ins and outs um, of essentially how Congress works. And... Oh, you realized it was some bullshit too? Absolutely. Can I cuss on you? Yes, go like, for it. I'll probably bleep it out, but whatever. It's absolute bullshit. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so they call the House of Representatives the People's House, right? Yeah. Um, and that's supposed to mean that it's the closest body that most represents the people of this country, mm -hmm. as opposed to the Senate, right? You know, they have longer terms. Um, they're supposed to be kind of like the elite legislative uh, or the elite part of the legislative branch, whereas the House is more of like the, the common folk. Right? Yeah, the common. Right. Um, exactly. Okay. The commoners. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> but even within the House, 
and it shouldn't be like that. It's just the fact that we know that because we work there yeah. that like the Senate is like the bougie, like they're not worried about they're less they seem less concerned with constituents yep. <laughs> because they yep. know that once they're in, they're in for a while. Whereas the house they're kind of like the puppets of their constituents supposedly they're supposed to be yeah exactly <laughs> they, they tell us they are yeah. like so just to clarify that if anyone doesn't know so the terms for um senators that are elected is six years whereas for the house those members only have two years left to run again right um so a really big difference in you know how much time they spend campaigning right um and you know how much well accountability that they're supposed to have because of those elections right um but you know when i was working inside i understood that first of all these members of Congress, a lot of them personally are, and I'm going to kind of mince my words, they're not competent for the jobs they're doing. Oh, my gosh. The yep. staffers under them essentially do all the work for the member, and mm-hmm. those staffers get fucked. Their pay yep. is, it, like, they're literally barely making minimal wage. Barely making minimum wage. It's a very, wage. very yep. expensive place. Yep. You know, like, so if you go um, into it, Mm-hmm. Uh, at the entry level position, working as like a staff assistant, you're probably not making more than forty, forty five thousand dollars, and you're literally running legislative branch of the U.S. government. Yep. And accountable to the people who elect them, right? right. The voters, to the common people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who are they accountable to? Right. Um, so, if we go back to the process of actually getting them elected, we know that uh, since. Um, I can't remember the court case, but you know the Supreme Court case essentially that allows super PACs, that allows corporations to get literally like unlimited amount of money to get certain politicians elected, mm-hmm. um, which means that every single political race is based around the money that that person has. Right. right. Like it, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but essentially, it's very difficult to beat a candidate when they have the money to cover all the airwaves with their ads to right. send out you know propaganda mailers that say there are certain things that try mm-hmm. to convince people that that person um is oh, yeah, it's a money game they're making mm-hmm. exactly it's it's all about the money mm-hmm. um so in that case you know these politicians are accountable to the corporate uh the actual leaders of this country you know the ones that aren't elected but the yep. ones that are pulling the strings behind <laughs> Yeah. The backs, you know, of, of all the people. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the rich people, the, yeah. the billionaires, the people that work for the billionaires, the people yeah. that uphold the system of capitalism. Yeah, you politicians are accountable too. Absolutely, and I, my favorite, my favorite conversation to have with people is when they're like, well, you know, Donald Trump didn't have any political experience before he was president, and I'm like, that's so false. It's so false yeah. because he had a lifetime of political experience. Mm-hmm pulling the strings behind the I mean he said it himself he said it himself exactly. when he was running when he was on the debate stage and he was like you know I don't have anybody <laughs> donating to my campaign because I have all the money to do it myself and that he was making a making a comment about something that is really real like a lot of times a lot of politicians we see on the stage they are manipulated by their donors and he knows that because he's been a donor for a very long time to to various political you know, endeavors so that he can get his way. So we all know that Donald Trump is a shitty person. I don't want to spend too much time talking about him, to be honest. But, like, my point is that, like, you're right. It is a money game, 110%. If you have the money, it's pay to play. If you don't have the money, if you can't pay, you can't play. That's just what it is. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where do, wait, where do we even, where are we? So 
Um, I mean, you hit on a really good point. Just even going into the, 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 so, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was the realization, those kinds of realizations for you that got you to the point where you were like, okay, what, like, where are you? <laughs> like, mentally, yeah, where are yeah. you now? Yeah, so, yeah, Congress was honestly the breaking point of any faith I had in being able to improve the conditions uh, created by the system, you mm -hmm. know, through using the different processes of the system. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, you know, by the time I, uh, you know, it was maybe a, so the uh, beginning of my junior year, so this is the fall after that internship. Um, at this point, you know, I've been reading a lot of like the political theorists, like, you know, part of the reason maybe some of the staffers didn't like me as much while I was an intern is because I'd literally be reading uh, a Marx textbook, like while I was, uh, you know, talking <laughs> to the constituents who were calling in complaining about um, mostly Trump at that point because yeah. Democrats didn't really do anything when the Republicans had the majority. Right. So a lot of the constituent talk was just uh, listening to their complaints about how bad the president is, which are completely accurate. Right. right. And valid. Yep. But then also how, frankly, how little those opinions, if they made their way to the actual member of Congress, if you know, they how much they actually did. swayed her opinion on any votes. Exactly. Right. Like, if they did. Yeah. Because we, we know how they, you know, even recorded. Uh, yeah. Now that now that might be a secret. I'm not ready to give people, but um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not great. Yeah, it's not great, and that's for most offices. So that's not exactly. just yeah, that, not, that, not just Brenda yeah, Lawrence. Like that's the way that the system works. The yeah, system, yeah. That, that's it. There are people who will call who are like, "I want to speak to the congresswoman right now," <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> "This is not gonna happen." <laughs> like, I wish you could, but yeah, I yeah. guess. So like that's another contradiction within our capitalist democracy. Um, right. The fact that you know we don't have um, democracy in the sense that like the people don't rule, right? There are right. multiple cases of democracy, or you know more of a democracy across the world. And a lot of the socialist countries they mm -hmm. have a bottom-up model of democracy. Um, I'll give an example. I was reading about Grenada. Um, this was 30 years ago, but essentially their democracy started where their president, um, the guy's name was Maurice Bishop, mm -hmm. he would go to community meetings, right? Like he would literally go to the neighborhoods and listen to what the people said, you know, mm -hmm. what their concerns were, what their problems. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted, you know, a new hospital here, a new, um, a paved road or things like that, you know, resources for the community. Right. And then it was up to the people at the top, you know, through the bureaucracy to the leaders to figure out how to accomplish that goal, as right. opposed to determining the goal and then just, you know, forcing the people to um, burden the implications of whatever decision made by the people at the top. Mm -hmm. Like, that's democracy. And what we have is not democracy. Right. So then, I think that you are saying things that people are feeling, definitely that people are feeling. But it's still, for whatever reason, it's still a very taboo perspective. And I'll be honest, like, I'm making it seem like we've you and I have always been on the same page. There have definitely been times where you tweeted something or said something in a way that like I was totally turned off by. And honestly, like I think I'm that, good, yeah. I mean, and I, and I think you know that, like that's not news to you. Like you've had many a conversation on Twitter with people who are just not really ready to accept the uncomfortability. Like you said in the very beginning of this interview that it's 
it was uncomfortable. Like it's it's an uncomfortable truth that none of us really want to accept yet. But once you get onto that page, you realize like what you're saying is legitimate and it's real. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what have you learned in this process about how to communicate your thoughts to people in a way that that where they can receive what you're saying, or does, sure, or is that a priority for, sure. for you? I'm, no, it absolutely be a is. For you. Okay. So. There's a couple different questions I want to, like, actually, I have so much to answer in response, but I'll try to, like, okay. uh, be as succinct as possible. Um, but, uh, so, you know, when I was first coming to these conclusions, right, so mm-hmm. the clarity um, of observing these contradictions, I think, leads to radicalization. Right. And that's a process that we've witnessed a lot more during the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In these mm-hmm. past six, seven months, just the perspective I've seen changed on my feed, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are understanding that this system isn't for them, right? We live in the literally the most powerful, wealthiest country in the world, but we have the highest number of deaths. We have the, uh, you know, still the worst outbreak in the world right now. Right. When this pandemic did not have to happen, Indeed. right? Like in that the epidemic. Okay, that's natural, right? Epidemics right. are the localized outbreaks of right. a, a new virus. Right. But the pandemic, you know, uh, notes the global perspective. And even if it did but, have to happen, it did not need to be handled the way that it was handled by our government. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because we live in a government that prioritizes profit over people. Yeah. They sacrifice our lives, and look how much billionaires have made over these past seven months. Yep. Jeff Bezos's net worth went from like 140 billion to 200 billion, over 200 billion, right? Right. Now. They're projecting he, that he'll be a trillionaire soon. Billion. Yeah, I think within like 10 years. I mean, that's not gonna happen. We're gonna have a revolution before then, but hopefully. <laughs> hey, that that's what the priority is. You know, people right? have this selective amnesia. Let's hope that people keep the momentum yeah. going, but. Yeah, and I think, so the, the radicalization, it's a difficult process, um, and it's not easy, because our whole lives in this country, everything is structured around the way that we live, everything we interact with on a daily basis is structured to indoctrinate us and, mm-hmm. like, propagandize us to be okay with the way that the system currently works. Right. Right? Like, our education system, um, it, it's not taught for us to learn how to critically think and how to solve the problems of our world. It's, right. you know, uh, there's a guy named Paulo Freire who wrote a book, uh, pedagogy of the oppressed where he talks about basically how our education system is set up to where teachers just like um imprint information on the students so we kind yeah. of accept it and like internalize it mm-hmm. but not really dissect it and break it down and learn how these yeah. things work right um you've, see, you've seen the you've seen the i'm taking what is it called it's like i took the u.s school system to court or something like that it's a spoken word i don't think i have but i need to listen oh, to it's it. super good it's just this guy basically talking about how Every single thing in our society has changed over the past hundred years, except for our education system. Like the way that we teach yeah. now is the same way we taught kids back in the you know early nineteen hundreds. <laughs> it was just insane yeah. to think about because that's the reason why we're producing. But whatever, we're, that's a whole other tangent. I'm sorry. No, that's a whole other podcast episode by you know by itself. Yeah, but continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, yeah, you're totally fine. Um, so, yeah, essentially, you know, me recognizing um, this change in the thoughts and the minds of a lot of people is, it's, it's really good to see. Because um, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, this process of like radicalization, 
even the word radical and the, the term radicalization has such like an edgy tone to it. Right? right, right. Like, oh, you're radical. Like, oh, you know, that that's never really brings um, <laughs> heartwarming feelings to mind at first. Um, right. Unless you've kind of like gone through this process but already. But Kyle, what are you saying that's so, endearing. what's so radical? What is so radical about then, any of this? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think yeah, about yeah. it and I'm like, what is so radical about about everyone being able to eat every night and everyone having a place to live. Like, what is so radical about that? Why is that such a radical concept? It's only radical because it's not what we already have or is it radical because we've been brainwashed to think that people don't deserve human rights? I'm just so confused because now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, this is not radical at all. This just seems very like what sh- sh- just should be. Exactly. <laughs> but then when, when literally the foundation... <laughs> of our whole lives is this lie, um, it's radical, right? So the lie that I'm referring to, um, and I'm not gonna get like too technical when I talk about capitalism, but essentially the way we organize our society, right? We have um, the means of production, right? So these are essentially Mm -hmm. the things that produce resources that people need to live, right? So let's go with the basics of uh, like quality food, um, water, uh, health, shelter education mm-hmm. right but mostly commodities meaning like the things that you physically buy and sell so let's right. say um like you know a, a bottle of water or um uh hell a tv dinner or something like that right mm-hmm. Just trivial examples but the the things that produce these resources that we need to live are privately owned right um meaning that we won't live our lives without working to get those things because someone else owns them right right which itself is a contradiction. Like the fact that you can own natural resources like water makes absolutely no sense. No right? sense. Those things are nope. things that the earth provided, things that we should all share because we literally need them to live. Right. Um, but because those things are this property of a certain class of people, mm-hmm. they make the rest of us work to earn enough of those resources to live. Not even enough to ensure we have a quality life, but just enough so we can make it to keep, you know, so we can make it to the next day to keep producing these right. resources, to keep making these rich people richer, mm-hmm. right? So this contradiction of capitalism, right? Um, the fact that the means of production are privately owned and the fact that workers, we can't create our own means of production, right? We can't right. create um, factories to like clean water, for example, to right. um, purify water. We can't, uh, perhaps on a small scale, right? You might be able to get enough money together for a little farm and that can feed your family, right. but that can't feed the mass of the people right um and like this private ownership of the means of production is literally the foundation on everything else in our society right like economics is um the foundation because people operate every aspect in their lives on the things that they need to keep going in those lives Mm -hmm. um you know so when people say like you know politics or economics is like refined to just these uh you know, kind of difficult academic topics. No, politics and economics are literally everything you encounter in every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to think about it like this so we don't feel so alienated from that process. Um, if we think that politics is just this thing that happens in these nice, ornate buildings of marble and, like, pillars and stuff, mm-hmm. and economics, you know, only happens in businesses or in classrooms and universities... It makes it a lot more difficult for us to understand it and to be able to affect it and to improve it and to change those political and economic conditions. Right. Um, so within these contradictions, this produces private wealth and public poverty. 
right? Like, think about this um, from a global standpoint. Think about all of the resources that all humans have pooled together. Right. Um, so we have billionaires, right? We have multimillionaires. Mm-hmm. We have rich people mm-hmm. who keep taking more and more from these this public pool of resources, and mm-hmm. that becomes their private wealth, right? That's how Bezos is able to get more billions, right? Mm-hmm. But Bezos's accumulation of wealth isn't something that happens independent of everyone else's economic standing. Right. Like, private wealth literally makes everyone else in that society poor, except the people keep accumulating that wealth. Right. Right. This is why we can't have um, ideas of like black capitalism, right? That if we just mm-hmm. have enough black billionaires, or if we have just, if we pull our money together um, and create our own black businesses and our own, uh, <laughs> especially with Kamala being in the news, I've seen a lot of jokes about black jails. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, we just have enough money. <laughs> so if we just pull enough black, some... yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly, yeah. Oh, no. Like, that's literally just creating more oppressors that look like you. Yeah. Um, and part of the indoctrination that we have in the system is having oppressors to look like us. Mm-hmm. One of my one of my favorites, and like not actually favorite. Beep, but, beep. About to, um, oh, no, 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 you're not. I, I you're know, not about yeah, to slander. Okay, no, no, no. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, okay. but so just, just to, I'll hold my tongue a little bit. But when we have these oppressive people in positions of power who make it seem like. It's not the system that's at fault. It's independent actions, right? Mm-hmm. You just need black folks to get their acts together. They need to learn financial literacy. They need to pull their pants up. They need to do whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll be able to get out of poverty. Right, 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 to, right. Ben uh, Carson, that's Ben Carson's biggest like thing, too. And given that he's from, oh, you know, a very poor community in, in Detroit, it's like, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Like, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because that reality was real for him but like you said that was a perfect example like you said maybe you can pull the resources maybe with a stroke of luck you can build a well for you and your neighbor and that's just you know y'all can have that and then imagine you do something like that you you do you you put it together you build the well you dig down get some groundwater and you're drinking good clean water and then you tell everyone, well, everyone in the entire in the entire country, well, we did it over here. We we dug a hole and we built the well and and we're the champions of our own fate and and black people can <laughs> black people can do whatever you know you know what I'm saying? Like that's not yeah, yeah. that's that's that that's literally that was a perfect analogy, even though you were literally talking about clean water, like that can apply to pretty much every, like you say, black oppressor who is idolized simply because they're black and there are yeah and there and there are a very nice handful of those kinds of people yeah and i want to so i don't want to make a blanket statement and say that all well in the same way all cops are bad all capitalists are bad but when referring to um, i'm shocked that you're not willing to say all cops are bad (laughs) i'm saying so you know yeah all cops are bad no like what i was saying was um, oh at first, I was going to say all black billionaires are bad, right? But I want to okay. be more specific in the sense that some of these black capitalists are not intentional oppressors in a way that some others are. Oh, absolutely right? not. For You're example, right. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of rich black celebrities that uh, don't understand capitalism. And therefore, like you said, you know, they go with this, uh, like, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps narrative. Yeah. And they say, okay... You all need to do that as well. 
Mm-hmm. And in doing that, they may be earnestly trying to help, you know, black people and to end like anti-black oppression, right. not just anti-black oppression, but just anti like minority oppression. This indigenous black uh, Latino, um, you know, in regard to uh, gender oppression, you know, sexual orientation oppression, all these different layers of oppression. Right. But individual actions cannot alleviate the systemic condition of oppression. Right. Like it takes us being radical meaning going to the root of the problem to actually improve these conditions to actually change things and make things better for our people right um so if i can go into a little bit of like how to actually accomplish this change yes yes about, thank like, you problems. that's a perfect perfect segue yeah, yeah. go ahead so um how are we told is the most optimal way to accomplish political change like what are the common things going around that you say you hear um, I think, okay, there are so many, there are so many. I think that a lot of people are, are hearing that they need to, well, you know, number one, they feel like they need to vote and mm-hmm. I am a proponent of voting, so I'm not going to speak against or for it, but that's one thing, voting, um, having, creating spaces for dialogue about the, tr- the reality of the world we live in. Um, there's a lot. What are you thinking? Yeah, so um, going back to voting, right? So earlier in the uh, episode, we talked about the contradictions within voting in America. Right. Um, and when people ask me, um, you know, when I express criticism of the current presidential candidates, they say, mm-hmm. okay, well, they're both bad, right? And I won't go into how bad they are because we already know that, and that's just a waste of time. Right. Um, but I will uh, argue but, that one is objectively worse than the other. But okay, but see, even within that, um, part of the uh, duty of, of capitalism is mystifying what's good and bad. Like in my opinion, um, a lot of the things that the last president did were bad. Um, okay. But, you know, yes. it, it just to plow some stats in an example, and of course Trump's mm-hmm. bad, right? right. This, I was referring to Obama being bad, but Trump is also very, very bad, right? I'm right. not saying that Trump's any degree better than anyone else. You know, right. He's, of course, a, an awful human being. Yeah. But Barack Obama deported more people than President Trump has. Barack Obama mm-hmm. murdered more people over, overseas, civilians. Okay. Like, he drone-bombed more of them than Trump has, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, okay. And Biden will, you know, assumably continue a lot of these policies that Obama had mm-hmm. and when we talk about good or bad politicians in America we often don't think about the collateral damage around the world right, right? right. like oh, no, that's another policy that's another episode too within itself it, no like literally I can talk about foreign policy all day if you want to because I think so one of the things about imperialism and radicalization I think when we learn the history of U.S. imperialism around the world that itself is a very radicalizing point yeah um if, if we literally learn about how much violence you know, the, the people that say they lead us and care about us mm-hmm. uh, burden on our brothers and sisters and our non-binary family around the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, that exposes their contradictions even more. So when we talk about solving these things, we can't think about only solving problems in America. Everything we do in the um, aim to improve conditions of oppressed people in America mm-hmm. has to be aiming to improve condi- uh, conditions for oppressed people around the world. Right, of like course. That is you know 100 percent the duty of all of us if we actually want to improve things mm-hmm. um so you know voting in one 
imperialist is like voting at another. But the difficult thing about how to actually change these things is no matter who wins this election, things will be more difficult for us as people trying to end oppression in this world. You know, people trying to end capitalism to, you know, get rid of all the difficulties that it imposes on people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to think long term when we're looking at uh, solutions and, and how to fix things. So one thing I've been doing um, with for the people of Detroit is recognizing that in order to actually change these systemic conditions in a way that's sustainable, in a way that's actually democratic, in a way that's actually liberatory, we have to we have to begin with the communities. We have to begin with the people. Right. We have to be grassroots in our organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, I mean, what does that look like? To, what is, what does a grassroots yeah, organizing look like for you? Yeah. So with for the people of Detroit, we recognize that in order to even begin to talk about some of these systemic conditions, people have to have their most basic needs met. Right. right of course. Like it's it's difficult to uh, stop a person in the corner and talk about you know the revolution and capitalism and colonization and land back in America. You know because America is a legal settler colonial state. Right. If that person doesn't have enough food to feed themselves that night, right, 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 right. I mean, it's just is, a simple, a simple Maslow's hierarchy, like of needs. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, people have to have their most basic needs met before exactly. they can focus on higher levels of that pyramid right so what we do is um we work with a lot of the unhoused folks near eight mile and woodward and eight mile and i-75 in detroit mm-hmm. uh we provide them with um food twice a week with hot meals on saturdays with bag lunches on thursdays mm-hmm. we give them cold water monday through friday uh, one of us walks up there each day and gives them you know some, some basic water right mm-hmm. we give them medicine uh resources like books or whatever they need to just mm-hmm. get by that day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this has to be done on not just, you know, with the unhoused, but with all members of our community. What is that? Right? What is that, the unhoused? What is okay, that yeah. What is so, that about? Homeless um, is kind of more of a disparaging term. And this is like a, you know, a new, like, political... Right, because I, I saw you say that the other day, and I was thinking, what is that? Yeah, so one of the terms, you know, so some of the terms I've been trying to be more aware of using or either um, like unhoused or housing precarious meaning mm-hmm. like uh, like unsecure housing mm-hmm. as opposed to homeless um part of the rationale behind that and this isn't you know my rationale this is what i've learned from other people who work in the in the field um mm-hmm. and, you know in these uh different spaces around the world is ho- homeless like a home is more than just a brick building right um and to, to a degree, every person has a home, and it may not be a stable home, it may not be a home that meets their basic needs, um, but it's a home. Mm-hmm. And the house is, a house is not a home, right? The home right. is the community, the home is the people who are around you, your home is the people that support you and love right, you, right. and want to uplift you. Right. So we're trying to help, you know, although we can't provide houses for these people just yet, we want to be a home for them in a sense that we help them meet their basic needs and improve okay. their lives in this okay. way. Right. Um, and and after so that, long, we're of... able to. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. You, you finish your thought. I was gonna say, um, you know, so beyond that, we're able to tackle these bigger systemic issues because you know this first step um, on the ladder has been that you know we're able to do more in terms of actually challenging the systemic constructs. Part of the reason is because um, if, if people are not so dependent on the state system on the capitalist system to meet their basic needs they're better able to combat that system right, right? like if um oh, sorry i'll let you go ahead and make your point before i keep going with that oh no i was just 
No, I was just saying that, and honestly, after so long of using a word, um, that that within itself in the language, like within the dictionary, does not have any negative connotation. Um, after so long of using it in a negative way, it's sort of transformed into when you imagine someone who's homeless, you have like an image that pops into your mind. Um, exactly. But sort of rewriting that like narrative. Right, 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 and it's yeah, and it's. Like, yeah, I mean it is disparaging, and so like exactly. changing the changing the even changing something as simple as the sound of the word in someone's mind can work wonders for how people perceive those who are without a home or without a house or however you want to put it. But anyway, yeah, continue with. They, they seem saying. like small steps, but like I said, you know, our ability to actually challenge the systemic conditions starts with very very many these small steps yeah, um, absolutely. and thinking about the, the language you use like language is a very important tool mm -hmm. um it's it's you know ridiculous and the fact that we use a colonized language that was literally used to oppress our people right. um, and the basis of this language uh is oppression frankly right, right? Our, our our cultural languages you know from west africa we don't know them and that itself is a whole other level of oppression and taking away someone's power right um so part of our duty to take that power back is to be more careful about how we use this language um mm -hmm. because that th that changes how we think about you know everything else that we encounter in the world right um so so going on to the next step of you know the solutions so community organizing right and this is radical community organizing um this isn't charity right charity versus mutual aid mm -hmm. that's a very important distinction i want to make so charity is the process of um, kind of like top-down patronizing help, right. right? In the sense that when when we think of the people that give our unhoused folks charity, right? They often give them, um, for example, like they'll give them canned goods without a can opener, right? Or they'll give them raw chicken that needs to be cooked, right. as opposed to like they they don't have a house. How are they going to cook this food? Right. right, 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 right. And those are kind of small examples, but basically. Mutual aid, on the other hand, is listening to the needs first mm -hmm. and having the people you want to be helped let them know how to help them, like how you can help them, as opposed right. to just assuming or, you know, have um, someone up top say, like, well, I, I know what these people need, right? Mm -hmm. So just give them what I think that they need and what I think they can use. Right. Mutual aid and revolution isn't going to be built on charity. Right. It'll be built on mutual aid. And mutual aid is in the sense that it's mutual because you're helping these people get back on their feet and in turn they help the people around them right. uh, improve their conditions to a you know a smaller level mm -hmm. and so that itself is the community healing itself that's what right. the usual aspect about it is and it takes um, it definitely takes away some level of dependency as well exactly like it, it gives exactly, people yeah. accountability for their own well-being um in like a way that's charity, productive absolutely charity is um going back to the contradiction of capitalism we need charity and capitalism because if capitalists create poverty, they have to be the ones to, you know, pop in, save the day, and look charitable and look good while they're right. helping to solve a problem that they themselves create and perpetuate. Right. Like when capitalists are um, engaged in philanthropy, that's not liberatory. Like that, right. that's not actually helping those people. As opposed to building a wall for these people, they're giving them bottles of water. So right. those people have to keep depending on the philanthropy and on the charity to living as opposed to being able to sustain themselves. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So radical community organizing, that's the first step. 
Okay. Um, the second, and this is difficult, but it's very important, is um, better able to understand the system that we live in. Right. Part of that is reading a lot of political theory. Or not, not even just what are you reading? Here, what what are three books you theory. think everybody should read? Oh, so I've been compiling a, or compiling a Google Drive of a bunch of books. I'm I'll, sure you have. I'll, I'll tag in my social media <laughs> info later so I can put the people onto those. Yeah. Okay. Um, but what I mean by this political theory is people have been fighting the same fight that we're fighting right now. People have really been fighting this fight for 200, 300 years. Yeah. We're, we're not the first ones. Yeah. Um, what if I mean, not longer. socialist at first. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like we're literally building off of what they did. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'm going to drop Marx's name right quick. Marx is a very important <laughs> political thinker. I, I would not recommend him, honestly, as like a first intro, like, you know, dipping your toe in political theory because a lot right. of his work is convoluted. It's complicated, difficult to understand. Right. Um, but when you get to a certain point, it is very, very important to read people like Marx. Um, because what Marx did, after these utopian socialists were, you know, essentially hoping for the charity of the rich people to create like utopian the communes and like little socialist societies mm-hmm. marx came in and was like that's never going to happen because you're still not attacking the foundations of that system right um so he came in with this scientific socialist socialist approach that mm-hmm. is it's kind of like um you know what darwin did with biology right, right? like everything that he said wasn't accurate everything they said it wasn't right mm-hmm. he was a person with very good ideas and a lot of his stuff was correct Right, and it's important for us to take those ideas, learn them, learn how they were wrong as well, but more importantly, to build upon them. Right. Um. So, you know, people like the Black Panther Party, for example, the Black Panthers were Marxist. Uh, Huey Newton, mm-hmm. Bobby Seale, Red Marx, and a lot of their stuff takes his Marx analysis and puts it in America. You know, in the hoods in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'd recommend a lot of stuff from the Black Panther Party. Um. A lot of stuff, for example, I've been setting people as Hatsha Kaur's autobiography pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Um, because what she does is tell her like life story in a very engaging narrative. But it's full of political theory that doesn't talk about it, like academics talk about political theory, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not boring, it's very engaging, very exciting. Uh, in the way that she talks about how, you know, she was reading Mark and Lennon to help her make sense of uh, oppression, you know, against the Black Panther Party, against the Black Liberation Army, for example. Mm-hmm. So... I guess that's the number one book I'd give right now. Number two, um, I mentioned Pedagogy of the Oppressed earlier by okay. Paulo Freire. That's a really good one. Okay. Jeez, uh, the third one is difficult. Uh, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Uh, <laughs> I looked at my bookshelf and I got ashamed because I'm like, all my stuff is, <laughs> all my stuff is fiction. I need to be better. <laughs> I like to use my, I like to use literature too. I've been using it for the past couple of years for my entire life as more of an escape than a yeah. reality buster. So I need to grow up. <laughs> so so with, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a good point. So I think that um, often when we think about learning more about the system, it becomes, it seems depressing, right? We yeah, learn about it is. It's like how big the, <laughs> these oppressive constructs are. Yeah. But I think one of the important things about reading a lot of this, of this radical revolutionary political theory is that you know, when Marx was writing this, this was when kids, you know, were literally working in a factory for 16, 20 hours out the day, right. dying of black lung before they turn like 18, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was like, okay, this is really bad, and 
I'm learning more about it, which is making me even more upset. But it's making me upset in the sense that because I understand it now, mm -hmm. I can I, I'm better able to get rid of it and to improve it. Right. Um. So I think when reading theory, it's very important to have this revolutionary optimism in mind. Like we have to hmm. have that if we think that mm -hmm. um, we can improve things. Revolutionary right? like, optimism. Absolutely. That's, you know that's what? The key. I love that. Yes, that's not something that keeps me afloat. Um, that's what keeps me hopeful. It keeps me working hard. It keeps me passionate. Mm -hmm. And my revolutionary optimism keeps getting inflamed by the work I'm seeing. Um, you know, everyone else working to also facilitate and bring this revolution and to end these oppressive systems. Right. Um, so a third, my third recommendation, I have to just give, you know, this book uh, drive that I have on my Twitter. Because honestly, there's too many good ones on there for me to just pick a third and kind of like disregard all the other ones. Huh. Okay, because this is one of my personal favorite authors, writers, uh, this guy named France Fanon. Oh, yes. She wrote a book called The Rest of the Earth, um, okay. which talks about the... So, I'll give a quick little bio on Fanon. Fanon was a... Uh, he was from the black... What do you call it? The French West Indies, but he was a black dude from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, but he learned French. He went to study psych psychiatry in France. He mm -hmm. fought against the Nazis in the mm -hmm. war. Um, but then afterwards, he moved to Algeria and okay. became involved in the Algerian revolution against French colonization. Oh, but Fanon's speciality was studying the, he was studying the psychological effects of oppression on oppressed people. Okay. Right. It's a very fascinating study. And you said um, the wretched of the earth about, is the one that you recommend. Exactly. Yeah, okay. He has a lot of good ones. But yeah. The wretched of the earth is, you know, the most relevant one, I think for right now for our current conditions. Okay. Um, Cause he talks about also the, the notion of violence and revolutions. And this mm -hmm. is even more of a sketchy topic than the word radical right. violence, right? But essentially what he's saying is that um, this oppression was created through violence and it's been sustained through violence, mm -hmm. right? And uh, in the efforts of the oppressed to get rid of this oppression, you can't effectively fight violence without violence because that doesn't challenge the violence that just let the violence continue to go mm, that's um, a hot it much more eloquently you know you got to read his books get his exact words that, mm -hmm. that's his essence of his argument mm. well i so i've written down all of your recommendations and i the the first one and the one that i'm most ashamed that i haven't already read is the autobiography of asada shakur and that yeah I've yeah, I have no excuse. I just haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> so I just need to get just buckle down. Um, yeah, and get into it. But um, yeah. I mean, can you believe that this conversation has already been going on for an hour? Jeez, no. Yeah, not even. I know. Isn't that insane? Um, you were giving your recommendations for how to be the most. Wait, I'm sorry. You were giving your recommendations for... I'm going to edit this out. What am I saying? Um, okay. <laughs> you were giving your recommendations for how to um, become a more informed, radical mm -hmm. person and individual. Um, and you gave your first two. It was... Community involvement was number one, and then number two and was revolutionary community involvement. Like that's, a, that's an important distinction too. Started revolutionary community involvement. I'm sorry, revolutionary com community involvement. And the second one was 
getting engaged with with more literature and reading and and um it's and all forms of knowledge knowledge you know, a lot of right. documentaries podcasts audiobooks whatever right floats your whatever boat. floats your boat but you need to be you need to be diving into that and i feel like just for the sake of the aesthetic of what you're doing there's got to be one more recommendation um, unless unless you think that those two are like because in my mind honestly those two are very it's almost like a beans and cornbread type of a thing like exactly, you have yeah. your you have your actually physically going into communities and doing things and being and being revolutionary and then on the other hand you have your individual experience of absorbing knowledge and honestly like exactly. maybe there isn't that much more to it maybe i i may i might add that I think that one last thing that you could add um, is probably, in my mind, you have your revolutionary community building, but then I also see the activism part of it. And I know you said you're not an activist, but there is a certain level of, like you said, even it's it's underlying in the words that you're saying, especially the fact that you highlighted that one part of, of what France Fanon is talking about in terms of fighting fire with fire um yeah you have to get out on the streets and you have to be yeah. the voice and some and for some that doesn't look like being on the streets itself it doesn't mean like you have to be the person you know with the with the blow horn yelling in the front but that could mean digital organizing that looks like you know pa- passive organizing like you know like really getting into that revolutionary community community building like you were saying or you know, be, being a support system for that sort of revolutionary movement um, in some Absolutely. way that transcends just the withholding the knowledge by reading, listening to podcasts, and all that. That transcends the community building aspect of it. Um, although that is very, uh, that is very, that's a that's that that's very important and 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 very. Um, necessary there i think that there's one extra step of actually being a part of debunking um this current systems that we live under would would i be right in saying that absolutely yeah so i think in this third case it'd be disrupting the ability of the system disrupting it yes Mm -hmm. Um, so Mm -hmm. uh one thing with with protests right so i don't necessarily always mean protesting because protesting is not always the way to go No, that's what I was going to talk about. Exactly. That's what, exactly what I was going to say. So with, in a lot of cities, um, just a few days ago, we reached the 100-day mark since the George Floyd protest began. Like in wow. Detroit, for example. That's crazy. Know, people have been protesting 100 days. Um, while that is a uh, very noble effort, I think it, it's done a lot to bring together a lot of the community organizing Yep. Uh, in Detroit. And I don't mean like the revolutionary community organizing, but I mean just like, the community members themselves just getting to know each other better, right? Getting, you know, getting together in another city. Better. And also, there's something to say, though, too, Kyle. There's something also to say about the fact that, like you said, it brought communities together. But my mom, um, my mom grew up in the '70s, and there have been moments where she was watching the protests and was almost brought to tears with how many. I'm not trying to applaud people for doing what they need to do, do what they have to do, but. I, doing what they should do, but I will say there were moments she was brought to tears by how much white activism on behalf of the issue yeah. there was. Yeah. That was like yeah, shocking to everyone. <laughs> at the Juneteenth protest, I met a guy who was a member of the Detroit chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, so this is in early June before 
um, you know, even these last few months of protests. Mm-hmm. But he was just remarking about how pleasantly surprised he was to see so much diversity. It's interesting so much to call diversity. Like white involvement diversity, but you know, in an 85% black city in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, it is diversity. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was essentially saying, you know, like how much different this is than a lot of the protests um, of the 60s or of the 70s. Right. Um, so so there is something to say about it, even point. though we're trying to be, you know, all, you know, we don't want to applaud people for doing what they should be doing. At the same time, it's it is like kind of touching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it shows the progress. You know, right. our, like a lot of stats show that our generation is in more support of socialism than capitalism. Yeah, that's being reflected in these protests. Now like that. that is now that is really interesting because I mean we don't I really don't want to like I said I don't want to hold up too much more of your time and you were about to make a point about why protesting isn't always the best but mm-hmm. I just also wanted to tap into some one other thing that people like you said our generation is really honestly like becoming a very well informed. Um, very forward-thinking progressive group of people that is very exciting and happy to see but at the same time there is a difference between being very liberal and being very leftist like I've been seeing like on Twitter and all that and people I think that one thing I will say is that even for me and there is still so much learning I have to do so much so much reading I still need to do so much you know being involved in the community that I need to do but like that like I was saying earlier that is a really enormous pill to swallow and it's difficult and it's and it's and there have been many a time where I have completely rejected the idea of being socialist and I'm like that is baloney people who are people who are communists are naive they think that it's gonna work and we're just gonna have a dictator and whatever and that was totally misinformed and um my point being that you can be a very progressive person and still not be where you need to be because you haven't been able to cross over. You're still abiding by the rules that the system has set out for you. It's like you're being radical within the confines of the the system that they created. So therefore, they can kind of govern your radicalism. And that's like not really productive. So I'm curious exactly. from your perspective how you what you would say to someone very quickly how to jump over that hump. What is that? I know that you gave examples of what you should do, but like, is that enough? Is that all it takes? Or like, is there some other internal battle that you have to fight to be able to jump over that that hump? I think there's always an internal battle going on. Right. Um, like even at this point, you know, I've been able to overcome a lot of the um, misunderstandings, right. a lot of like the de- deliberate misteachings right. um, of how the system works. At the same time, though, it's literally a lifelong process of, like, internal decolonization and mental decolonization. Right. And by that, I mean just being able to overcome all these false ideas that we've been, like, that have been imprinted in us about how the world works and about how the world should work and about how the world can work. Right. Um, So you mentioned liberalism. I'm happy you did Um, because liberalism, a lot of my social media posts who are being very critical of liberals and that's yes. because and they deserve my audience it. yeah we deserve it I, I think a lot of ways i've been pretty i've been pretty liberal and liberal is what i like to call it fake liberal <laughs> limousine like liberal yeah 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 so i mean we're um oh, i kind of forgot my point uh oh uh critical of liberals. A different one. yeah so um 
liberalism, I've been critical of liberals because my, my followers understand that Trump is bad. They understand that Republicans are bad, right? Yeah. They understand that they want to prevent women from having control of their bodies. They understand they want um, more blatant police brutality and racism and things like that. Right. But a lot of that is mystified when they think of liberals, right? Right. Like when you think of um, the U.S. military attacking people abroad, the Republicans come to mind as being the people who allow that and perhaps encourage that. Right. But then the reality is both parties of our government are imperialistic. Yeah. Um, the Democrats, like there's a, there's a meme where it shows um, like a Democrat's bombing versus a, uh, a Republican's bombing. The only difference is that the Democratic bombing just has like smiling emojis and like rainbows around it. <laughs> basically saying that like the Democrats make it look and seem prettier. When in yeah. reality, they're just as brutal as the Republicans. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And liberatory liberalism is also what a lot of um, like black capitalists or a lot of members of oppressed classes try to purport as a solution to end the oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll mention the current, there's a current person who meets a lot of the quotas of being oppressed, right? She is a woman of color. She's a woman. Um, mm-hmm. She's in the high position of power. At the same time, though, she's supporting constructs that oppress women, that oppress people of color. Mm-hmm. And getting oppressed faces into these positions of power, I promise you, does nothing to end that oppression. Um, mm. It like it makes it feel a little bit better than us because we have representation. Right. But that's not that's not going to radically change anything. Right. Um, and I think that it can be a um, a factor that further inhibits actual revolutionary progress because it makes it seem like the oppression's better when it looks like us. But right. you know, when in, reality, when in reality, it's more difficult for us to understand the oppression if we when think it that it's not like as us. bad. Oh goodness! Yeah. Exactly. Whoa. So um, to tie that back <laughs> to like the protests and my criticism of the protests, um, like a lot of marches, a lot of peaceful protests liberatory liberalism does not question the constructs of this system mm-hmm. in the same way that peaceful protests don't interrupt the system because of the peace i mean in order for a protest to be successful it has to inhibit you know whatever is protesting from being able to functionally keep doing what's wrong right um and liberalism does not effectively challenge capitalism it right. furthers capitalism it makes capitalism seem prettier um right. But liberalism is not going to help. It's not going to help us. Um, and in the shorter term, it may seem better to have a liberal, a um, liberal and obviously a conservative. I'm not, you know, explicitly arguing against that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that we have to think long term. We have to think about the, you know, systemic features. Right. And ultimately, these liberals are not going to help us if they're not questioning this, you know, the actual foundation right. of the system. Let's just say that it isn't going to do that and that if you vote in a more liberal person into office than a Trump or a more conservative person, um, let's just say that that's our reality. I think a big thing for me, at least, is that I would rather be going through what we're going through right now as a society with someone who is more docile as a president, someone who doesn't because of the way that I see it and it's hard to. It's hard to to communicate this by simply saying just go out and vote or or by or by just simply endorsing Joe Biden or Kamala. You always have to add these extra little caveats. But yeah. the reason why I the main reason for me why I am so for you know getting someone who is more liberal in office is because Donald Trump 
is has endangered the lives of black people who get out on the streets and are advocating for their lives in my mind if you have someone in office who i'm not and i'm not going to sit here and say i think that joe biden is a great guy or that he's he definitely has honestly in some ways been more probably more dangerous in his actual time as a politician than donald trump was but that's a hot take whatever my point is that he i don't think that he would tell his white followers that it's okay to hurt or kill or develop militias to hurt uh black people for yeah. you know for virtually no reason so you get what i'm saying like so for me it's no, not yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like it's like not a for, at that point it's not about politics it's more so about like if we're gonna do this if we're gonna start a revolution if we're gonna be sense. doing it what is the safest way how do we avoid a situation where we have someone who who is um encouraging the genocide of the people of the oppressed people you know what i'm saying like i saw a video today of um, a white militia <laughs> and they're all carrying their machine guns and they're all carrying their ak's and whatever and like that's in in a perfect world we would be able to do what it is that we're doing we could we can revolutionize we can move forward without someone in office telling the opposition that it's okay to murder us on the street you get what i'm saying yeah yeah definitely um so i'll give an analogy of um imagine like two rulers right imagine one ruler like you know, like measuring rulers not like ruling people yeah but, like okay. two measuring rulers that was a good like, distinction two wooden Thank you. measuring rulers <laughs> imagine one is standing up like on its edge and mm. the other one is balancing on the top of the other ruler Okay. So that is like this analogy. I'm trying to describe essentially like how the system works in terms of its um, sustainability and about like how it tries to balance out its contradictions. Okay. As capitalism becomes more difficult to operate, like as the contradictions become even more apparent, mm-hmm. as the system breaks down even more, that ruler is going to be even less balanced. It's going to keep turning either one way or the other, right? To the right, right or to the left. Uh, in 08, that ruler balanced the left a little bit when Obama got elected, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have to have the other implications of that balance and balance the right a little bit when Trump got elected, right? right? So it's seesawing on this balance, trying to get to equilibrium, but at a certain point, it can't do that anymore. It's going to fall off one side or the other. Right. And when it falls off, it leads to totalitarianism right. or fascism, right? Right. So... On either liberals, side. Yeah, and... I have a whole other thing about like all the the horrors and the fears of like communist dictators and authoritarians, but mm-hmm. that's literally a three-hour combo in itself. Right. But I want to focus more on fascism itself, right? So we're balancing more toward fascism right now. Right. And revolution is going to be a very difficult process. Um, yeah. It's beautiful in the sense that, like, I was gonna say at the end, but you know, it never really ends. But, like as we progress, things will get better. Mm-hmm. But this will be a very difficult process. Like right. That's, that's the hard truth. It's and the fruits of it are ones that we may really difficult. never get to see. Yeah. I mean, it may not be, you know, like our kids' generation, our grandkids' generation. Right. Will reap the benefits of it. Right. But I think it's our duty to fight for that better world for them. Absolutely. Because um, if, if not us, then it'll be them fighting for that same world for their grandkids. Right. Like, right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, basically... What we have to do um, is 
face these sobering realities, but not let that get us down. Right. Um, it should empower us. It should bring us closer together. Mm-hmm. And I think that so you talked about the two different like aspects, right? The theory and like the actual practice of it. Mm-hmm. So there's a term in kind of like these radicalizing circles of praxis, like P-R-A-X-I-S, mm-hmm. which is essentially like that theory combined with like the actual application of it. Right. Um, so if you understand the theory to a degree, then you can't sit on the sidelines. You have to get involved. And I think that's why I've been getting involved. Right. Um, because I know that if I don't get involved, then no one will. I could probably keep continuing. Mm-hmm. But it has to be a process of all of us having that same mentality of getting involved to improve things, right? If we sit on the sidelines any longer, things just keep getting worse. Um, but they don't have to be. If we get involved, we can literally make this world so much better for our people. And I think that's the duty of the oppressed in the world. You know, it's our duty to lead the revolution against oppression mm-hmm. because the oppressors are not going to do it themselves. Like the oppressed right. have to demand the end of that oppression, and that's what causes the oppression to lessen. You're not going to beg for your oppressor to be kinder, right? You're not going to successfully beg for them to hurt you less. Like, no, they're going to keep exploiting you in their own very misconstrued way that Loki makes you seem good because we all live in a capitalist world. And they're like right. the good guys, right? But we have to see through that mess. Um, we have to fight the change that we want to see in this world. One of the biggest things I learned in this conversation, to be honest, was that what you're saying and what we want is not radical. It's not crazy. It's not this. Oh, this no, it this, is this, radical, but oh. it's our duty to be radical. Right, know? but I'm saying like within itself, it's not radical. It's like, like if there's a whole neighborhood of people or a whole, let's say there's a group, a room of people, and everyone in the room gets. A, it gets to have a drink of water except for one person and it's like it's not radical to say that everyone in the room deserves a drink of water like that's not radical but it's only radical because that's just the way that we all of our lives my, our, all of our grandparents had the drink of water except for that person like like we're the ancestors of the people who got to have a drink of water and so therefore because it's been perpetuated through generations we think it's radical because it's different but really all along that person and their ancestors should have always been able to have a cup of water and we have just been denying that to them just because because we were told to do that and so like that's the way that I think about all these radical I'm putting quotation marks these radical ideas that you're talking about because they're not radical like saying that People deserve the things that they need. Why, like, your mutual aid I mean, for the people? Issue, like, that's you know, not that radical. Be like, what we all understand, you know, inherently. Like, that's right. Inherently, idea. people deserve clean water. Like, there's exactly. nothing radical about that. That, like, the fact that we politicize these things that are truly based in human dignity and human rights is just so, like, it's almost like we feed into the narrative that it's somewhat impossible by even insisting that what we're doing or that what we stand for is radical. Cause it's like very simple, very basic. It's like going through all of these hoops to get some something so very basic um, and something so very like necessary and regular and okay. Like it's not like we're trying to get everybody a flying car. You know, it's not like we're trying to like do all these insane things. It's like we just want to give people what they deserve and we have the means to do it. So for whatever reason, we're acting like we don't have the means to do it, but we have the means to do it. 
So what's like, the problem? Po- poverty is not natural. Poverty it's not. Created, <laughs> you know, with capitalism, and like that's an idea that a lot of people just have difficulty believing. Poverty did not exist until capitalists came in and literally expropriated resources from the communities that were self-sustaining. Right. To give an example of this, this is when um, European colonists, you know, would go to West Africa uh, or hell, any part of Africa, honestly. Right. Um, <laughs> and in like. God, I, I kind of want to even mention about like how this came to be, like how Europe came to rule the rest of the world. But just like quickly summarize it, it's only because the continent of Eurasia like had the resources that enabled civilization. So those people were at, like able to develop civilization faster than everyone else. It wasn't because they were smarter. It wasn't because they were naturally more gifted. It wasn't because right. they're white, and that's why they're right. You know, it's it's because of chance. But, mm-hmm. you know, over the last uh, 10,000 years after farming began, they were able to just propel themselves to develop faster. And that allowed them to have the tools to colonize other places. Right. So when they colonized West Africa, they would come literally into villages. And, I mean, so the village would be self-sustaining, right? Like that village, right. uh, you, like they, they'd, they'd have their own food, they'd have their own water, all the basics to live, right? right. They were not in poverty. But when those capitalists came in, they would take away... Um, like the, they would take away the land, right? Right. So that forced those people to live on land that the capitalists own, and the capitalists would take away part of the, um, you know, food, for example, that those mm-hmm. people cultivated on the land, um, and that would leave those people with not enough to feed themselves. Right. And you know, same thing with like taxes, for example. They would come into a village and say, "Okay, well, you have to work for me and give me." you know, a, a dollar every month in my currency. And the mm-hmm. person would be like, well, I have everything I need to live. All I need to work for you. And, mm-hmm. like, those colonists would literally impose violence onto those colonized people and say, if you don't do this work for me, like, I'll, I'll keep worsening your life. Um, right. And poverty is violence just like that. It may not be as uh, direct, but in the same way that, you know, people are dying because they don't have enough uh, money for basic health care, that that's violence that's yes it that is that is another thing we're violence. not talking about is that whole concept of direct versus indirect violence and caring about violence yeah. you think someone is like hitting you or shooting you but violence is also can be can be tenfold as damaging as direct violence um but it's just um spread out over time so exactly and that's the kind of violence that we're not going to be able to peacefully protest this is why phenomenon right yeah violence is never part of the revolution because all this violence is upon us and like even when we don't consider it violence because it's not coming from a gun or you know it's not coming from a person with a badge Mm -hmm. it's coming from people who have the power right and that's what we've got to fight against now i'll end on that well kyle this has been incredible and I, I mean, I expected it to be great, but the, like, you, wow. Yeah, this has been mentally scintillating <laughs> and, oh, yeah, it's a great well, way to end our day. <laughs> no, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Of you know, course. And asking me these questions because I'm able to just, like, think through a lot of this myself and, um, you know, with my activism or whatever, uh, <laughs> like, I try to do as best I can to spread political education and I hope right. that this podcast episode has helped me conduct that oh absolutely i just want to thank you again for joining me here on the sit down and you have a great rest of your day i'd be happy
able to combine inside. <laughs> okay, have a good night, sir. Good night, bye.